Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild and wacky world, because golly gee, it just keeps being weird. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt. I'm also known on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you are listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. And uh, this is a program where we talk about science fiction primarily and the good movies and how they impact, you know, your work. But I'm very lucky to be back for part two of my discussion with my 40th episode. Forty episodes. I'm here with Victor Caressel to discuss the 2020 psychological sci-fi thriller Possessor. Sometimes that small thought is all it takes to lose control. Happy to be back. Um, for those of you who are just tuning in and haven't heard part one, don't worry. It's all going to be pretty much the same stuff. So if you haven't seen the movie Possessor, it's not going to affect your understanding or enjoyment of this here program. But Victor is is special. He's a screenwriter who lives in Richmond, also was a Jeopardy auditionist, and a good chunk of the reason why our WRIR 48-hour film team won runner-up Best Picture in 2018 for the horror film Negative Space. He also wrote a screenplay recently. Is it done? Done so? Uh, it's printed, so... Okay, I, copyright? I, That's the most important part. <laughs> I did not go for a copyright yet, but I uh, it's sitting on my shelf as we speak, which is as far as I ever think it'll go, and I'm happy with that. That's pretty... So it's I'm considering it's it done. a huge achievement. It's called You Will Never Walk Alone. It's a horror film that, that melts together characters from five of the biggest horror films and kind of deals with their trauma. So for those of you who are tuning in for the first time as well, I'm going to give you a quick overview to this movie. But first, I want to ask you again, Victor, why did you choose this movie? Um, So this movie just kind of floored me in a way that I wasn't expecting last year. I I went in seeing it on a whim. I just knew that it was kind of under the Cronenberg family name. And um, I enjoy David Cronenberg stuff. Um, And I just like these kinds of concept films that are smaller, more intimate, character-based um, sci-fi movies and horror movies, um, even though I wouldn't necessarily even consider this a horror movie. I, I think it's more pure sci-fi uh, thriller. It's a thriller, but the, but the gore itself it, it, it's it the in, like, the, like yeah. the, the intensity of the gore. So this film was released last year, written and directed by Canadian filmmaker Brandon Cronenberg, son of the infamous David Cronenberg, king of kind of camp horror and maker of The Fly. It follows a uh, corporate killer for hire named Voss, played by Andrea Riseborough, uh, who on one of her missions uh, starts fraying around the edges and kind of loses control over her body. And Colin, her host, played by Christopher Abbott, kind of is able to submit his own will. And, and the battle and tug of war between their wills threatens to obliterate both of them. So it's quite entertaining if you're interested in psychological stuff. Um, beautifully filmed, just absolutely incredible. We're going to talk about some more of the cinematography. Um, I think you can find this film on Amazon Prime or do what Victor did and buy the Blu-ray, right? I actually have it on 4K Blu-ray as well, the uncut version. <sighs> yeah, so all those uh, those stabbings and just the blood flying up and the face yep. melting, it's all in glorious 4K. <laughs> So for those of you who are listening on WIR, there will be some discussion of, of sensitive content and a little bit of description of gore. Um, no sexual content, but please be aware that, you know, if, if just descriptions of gore are, are painful or challenging for you, 
um, you might want to watch the movie <laughs> first. Uh, all right, so let's get into it. I wanted to start off by talking about your screenplay and, and just the yeah. act of screenwriting. So David Cronenberg uh, is the, the father. Brandon, he was a writer. Brandon Cronenberg has, you know, big footsteps. But he had this idea, and then he wrote, right? He had the idea, then he formed the world around it. How did You Will Never Walk Alone get started for you, and how did that idea come out? Yeah, so um, it was... It was not the first idea that I ever had for a movie. It's just the first one that I ever completed. Um, it was about, I guess the idea first started in about 2014, 2015 as a, a coherent thing. But the really, like the real answer is that it, it's kind of a mishmash of a couple different thoughts or memories or ideas that I had. So um, for for context, what the movie is, is it's a... Um, a five, I guess a five-hander. So it, it focuses on five young women who live together in a sort of halfway house situation um, after each surviving their own um, individual horror-based attacks. So one of them is kind of modeled on, they're, they're modeled on a couple different kinds of horror movies, um, like the more uh, traditional slasher, like Halloween and Friday the 13th, um, more some more sci-fi base like alien um there's a little like texas chainsaw massacre in there with the more uh like brutal gore like almost like a giallo film um and it, it i try to focus on each of the characters psyches after those after they live through those events and how they feel about themselves after surviving it um what they think about the world uh, how they interact with other people because my i remember thinking um in i believe it's which one it's friday the 13th part two i believe it is where um the the final girl uh in the end of the friday the 13th movie um survives and obviously because she's the final girl and um in the opening credits of the second movie she's very unceremoniously killed off by uh by um jason in a like almost is just like a tease. Like appa- apparently the real reason for it was because she had scheduling conflicts, so she couldn't actually. Right. Do the yeah. Movie. Which is hilarious, right? Like yeah. Hollywood. Yeah. But the I remember watching that movie and being so mad. Is like, what the? That is so unfair to that character that she lived through this horrible event, and we mm-hmm. see her for like two minutes mm-hmm. in the beginning. Seemingly have like an okay life, I guess. She just is fine, and then she just gets hacked apart in her kitchen. And it mm-hmm. felt like there was no just there's no justice for that character, and there was no um, no future for her really. Like she was just resigned to be another target for uh, for Jason. And so that was one big element of it was I just wanted to give the give a future to those those characters from those yep. movies um, that are otherwise just kind of nameless and uh, and faceless. At Victor K's home for wayward final girls. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, well, both of these, so there's some similarities to Possessor, which I think are interesting. Both of them have rugged female heroines mm-hmm. in multiple characters, good and bad. Both of them deal with this concept of possession, right? And that, you know, there's a scene where Mrs. Wyndham is not Mrs. Wyndham anymore. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah, that, definitely. There, There's an element of, in my screenplay, of um, somebody that that you inherently trust and and uh and love as a person 
is revealed to not be the person that you think they are literally uh it's somebody else in like wearing their skin wearing in a way their skin or, or um, just like you know being like an invasion of the body snatchers double kind yeah. of situation right? yeah and um and how not only that but like so that it, it also references a there's also a past event that happens to a woman in the uh in the movie similar to that um so it just it i wanted to delve into how that makes you feel about society like how how would you trust anybody after you go through an experience like that like how how do you ever know that somebody is who they say they are and, and i think possessor kind of speaks to that a little bit is like how how that that that's the most terrifying does, idea, right? idea is like Possibly you could just be a, doesn't. she doesn't yeah like, yeah, like mm-hmm. somebody could have just hired my mom or hi- like somebody could have hired <laughs> this company to <laughs> in like hack into my mom and then on thanksgiving when i go to visit her she could just murder me and suicide herself in the house like that's such a terrifying thought and you would never know your dying thought would be that your mom mom? (laughs) so i think that that's okay but that was a conscious choice which is why i think the choice to do the corporate decision right like you talked about how the bleed over and the effect of the technology on the world is more interesting in inception than the story that we focus on if the if he decided to go with like an interfamilial right where somehow the technology is only used by i don't know people who want to sow chaos between families i don't know why i mean there is some fam- familial murder in these movies right people who yep. you think you know to spoil it to completely colin is a man is 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 basically possessed and then ends up having to kill his own fiance yep. it's really scary and sad and it's really sad <laughs> yeah. but and, it, and would, I think, it would not be the same movie if it was like at the the Thanksgiving dinner. Right? No, absolutely not. I think that I think that's a different movie. And to the point of the world building, I, I think the simple answer as to why Inception and Possessor Possessor both have corporate uh, backgrounds is, I, I think, from a narrative perspective, I think that those are the people that can pay for it. I think these are probably incredibly <laughs> right. lucrative and expensive right. things. I don't think anybody cares enough. To right. just off, like I think you you just they hire could just pay you could just pay somebody yeah you yeah, just hire so, a goon <laughs> so the way yeah the the idea of subterfuge here is interesting but you know for somebody who's listening in and they hear wow Brandon Cronenberg spent seven years developing this film with his with his DP and just really working on getting the funding and just getting everything perfect and you Victor you know you had your idea in 2015 and here it is 2021 yeah. you know what would you say to an aspiring filmmaker or scriptwriter? to not get their hopes down and you know yeah um i i think i think you're going to fail if your only end goal is like i want this movie to be made like like i'm not going to do it if it can't be done like because i i early on i kind of had those thoughts like well why am i even doing this if i know that it's not going to be made exactly how i want in my head so i think that before you even do anything i think you kind of have to have that idea out of your head especially if you're not a professional if you're not in regularly in the industry, um, because I, I am not, I mean, I don't have any, uh, any illusions that I'll ever get this movie made or anything, like an but the age. goal, the goal was, just I just wanted this, it to festivals. I could. Right? I could. Yeah, I absolutely could. Um, but the, the goal was, I just wanted this idea on paper. I, I wanted it out there and, and kind of out of my head because I had been thinking about it so often. And mm-hmm. the, the other element of that advice is, I guess, just don't don't stop. Like don't give up on an idea, even if you don't know if it works on a fundamental level. Because I still don't know if my screenplay really works. Like if the core premise 
works for people. And and absolutely when some people read it, I'm sure that they think like, I don't get this. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for me. It doesn't connect with me. And I don't think it's going to connect with everybody, but I think you need to be true to what your idea is and what your vision is and however long it takes to get that out. It yeah. could take years. I there were there were elements of the story where I had I like probably the first day that I sat down the first weekend I sat down, I think I got 50 pages out just because it the so much of it I had been thinking up to that point and then I just stopped. Like a week after a week would go by maybe I'd get a line of dialogue additional. And sometimes I'd be inspired enough to have a whole scene, like a two or three page, maybe four page scene that I could get out in a very basic form. But other than that, it was it was very short spurts is in I would just think up a line or I'd think of something that a character character could do or uh, just like a new location that might be interesting. Um, so it, it, it's not all going to come to you at once. And if you you can set deadlines for you to get something on the page, which I would recommend. I, I didn't have any of those deadlines set, so it took me four years. Um, but don't don't get discouraged if it doesn't immediately come to you as one cohesive idea that has a beginning, middle, end, a, a neat three, four, five-act structure or whatever with all the characters introduced. Because um, a, a lot of these seeds of ideas are just just that. Like the In addition to that, um, that viewing experience of um, Friday the 13th part two the other initial idea that I had was I wanted it to be like an Avengers of horror like I but the initial idea was I wanted it to be like a um, like Avengers versus Suicide Squad of horror movies so like all the surviving final girls of oh, these movies so would, fight, would fight the um, would the fight baddies. the baddies again and the more I thought about it and the more I, I kind of worked in the characterizations and, and the world building that I wanted I realized that I couldn't really do I couldn't give justice to the characters like I wanted after watching Friday the 13th part two while also making that movie. It, it felt ingenuous. It felt disingenuous to me. So especially after reading um, uh, Carol Clover has a, a brilliant book analysis on horror movies and, and feminism in horror movies uh, called Men, Women and Chainsaws. Uh, it was written in the 70s. That's where the term final girl comes from. Um and she talks about all about the the ethics, quote unquote, of horror movies and what a, a woman needs to be or do or not be and not do in order to survive these movies. And, and what men in those movies put them through is kind of tests to see, like, are you worthy of surviving? Um, Here's a hint. If you have sex on screen, you go down. Yep. <laughs> you go down. You going down. So but, that's really cool. You kind of did like a feminist exorcism on these movies. Yeah, right? it was kind of like a de just deconstruction of that. And um, and I, I wanted to explicitly subvert that in the movie. So there are characters that have sex and do drugs in the movie that don't die. And there, yeah, are, characters that think nothing, there are characters that think nothing matters. Like, I, I don't care about my life. I, I kind of want to die in a way. And then they survive. So. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And there mm -hmm. are characters that do a total... 180 and and request penance and and try to just make their lives right and pure and they get the axe and like that's just how these things work like i i wanted to kind of erase that um that veil of of moralism that is on so many horror movies that feels just unfair to me that's great advice though stick to your idea get your idea out on the script and that's going to lead us into Let's start, we're going to talk about the studio and the lack of what you use, use AAA as a phrase, and then we're going to go through characters. So 
First, though, I want to tell you, if you don't know already, you're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt, your host of They Came From Outer Space. You're tuned into Richmond's independent radio channel, and I'm here with Victor Caressel talking about Possessor from 2020. All right, so speaking of keeping true to your own idea, this film feels remarkably cohesive and auteur, right? It feels remarkably... Absolutely remarkably how do i say this coal right you can tell when when studios have had tremendous amounts of involvement in a project when it just feels over edited and over overdone i i don't there were about 15 executive producers and i don't know if you remember like five different studios yeah but, I, I remember laughing at the beginning of the movie because it kept yeah, cutting so to new studios. studios so many studios like but you know this is how this is how indie movies get made can you just speak a little bit to the to the independence of this film. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I, I mean, like I said, in part one, I think Brandon Carnerberg has such a, a confidence in not only filmmaking in general, um, even his first uh, feature antiviral, which was eight years before this, uh, it, it was a little rough around the edges, but it had such a, uh, just like a passion and confidence in what he was trying to say and how he expressed it on film that I was impressed. And, and, and I think, he definitely is um, is benefited from these small studios where it's really just a bunch of small companies pulling their money together and saying, go make the best thing that you can. And I, I, I will admit, there, like we said in part one, there might be a little bit of nepotism to it. I don't know. But there are other movies that I've seen uh, recently um, that are, are similar size and uh, in scope, I guess, in terms of um, character and, and effects and everything that uh, are from totally first-time filmmakers. Uh, St. Maud is one I watched yesterday. Uh, that's the uh, the filmmaker Rose Glass. I believe this was her first movie she ever wrote or directed. Um, and it's it's brilliant. It's it's amazing, short, or uh, small-scale, like, character horror. Um, so I, I don't think you necessarily need to have those connections. I don't know what her connections are specifically. Um, but I, th- I think working in these smaller studios definitely lets you explore these these smaller stories without having to appeal to the these larger just kind of vacuous ideas of like just the broad side what every broad sci-fi movie has already an action movie has already uh tackled like these ideas of like corporate takeovers and world domination and mindless like zombies and stuff and, and what i kept thinking over watching this this movie the second time was that if this was a triple A movie, it would probably be something more akin to like equilibrium where it would have been a man who was doing the job of this possessor. And he'd been, he was the top possessor in the whole world. And he was slowly <laughs> losing his humanity or whatever. And yeah. he would come to realize that it was not that the work that he was doing was bad necessarily, but that the people that he was working for were corrupt or had this ulterior motive. And it would end with him doing this cool like awesome action scene where he was possessing people and and killing a bunch of people and he would like bring the organization down from the inside and that is like the most boring movie i can ever think of yeah like you're like that would be like the nolan 160 million version maybe yeah exactly like if this was going to be it to me there's some things that stand out that kind of shocked me in that I just don't, it's rare, it's rarer and rarer to see. I mean, yes, there's more independent films than ever, which is really cool, right? The the barriers have been lowered. 
but it's rare to see these touches that feel really human. And Brandon Cronenberg has a quote about like, you know, I think it's really important for, let me find it. I think he says he thinks it's really important for filmmakers to have their own style and understand. And, and he thinks it's really great that there are so many filmmakers that have such a deep understanding of language, um, like cinematic language, but that you yeah. need to make a conscious effort not to constantly just pay homage, which I think is him trying to get out from underneath his dad and yeah. focus on like what you're doing. That's unique. And I think that moment with the sound water, we talked about it's only on screen for like maybe 10 five seconds yeah right so we're our character she walks past it in the hotel and she sees this water that seems frozen which he and kareem hussein his dp spent a long time blasting subwoofer <laughs> tones to figure it out like you said 24 hertz they would they would like be so this is stuff that quote unquote seeing as the effect had only been done in science youtube videos we had to learn a few things the hard way Right, the choice to say we're gonna try something that's never been done and try and do this weird effect where we blast this water fountain with with sound waves until they pause midair or appear to right, they appear to pause midair, um, but they kept shutting off all of the um, like secondary AC cameras. <laughs> yeah, all the wireless all that, setups. Like, <laughs> so like all that stuff, like to me, like those touches, those indie filmmaking touches, made the world building feel off, weird, dreamy distinct like i didn't really understand it right it was like a very small moment but that, that to me was like something that the studio probably would have changed somehow or done in cg yeah and yeah i think cg would have been a, a way huger element of this movie had it been a bigger studio and and that's kind of just the way that that the industry is going there there are there don't exist these 20 to 40 million dollar studio movies anymore because um you have to you have to bring a return in and you need to guarantee some sort of um, some sort of market for it. And uh, unfortunately the trend is that like these physical practical effect movies just don't get the kind of draw that they used to, um, which is unfortunate. I mean, there, the CG does have its place. Uh, I, I, there's definitely, especially in recent years, like the, the jump in quality of CGI and what uh, filmmakers can do with it. Um, that are even out of your your eye, like or out of your perception of them. Like Fincher, for example, is one of the biggest proponents of CG in movies, and you never see what never he's know. doing really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the the I the fact that he's doing all of these effects in camera and just getting a a fake like cast of a head and just bashing it in and yeah. stuff like that, and just kind of like playing around with with the stuff in front of the camera and just seeing what happens and go doing different levels of intensity uh brandon kronberg was saying in in one of the behind the scenes was like we would do like 10 to 50 takes of certain things especially when it got violent and the last one was always well we're never going to use this prop anymore so let's just destroy it let's just go all out rip it apart everything and he said that was so often the take that we used because the ultra intense version was what i really was going for right um, and th yeah. there is and there is like a there's even though it's hard to watch a lot of times um Cronenberg's movies both David and Brandon and a lot of other ones that that use these kind of effects like John Carpenter and um stuff yep. like that like, there's just it's kind of like the ultimate yeah item. like regardless of the the genre there is a vis a visceral fun to watching that happen like you you, you can't help but laugh sometimes when you're like ooh yeah dang that is that's what that's wicked it's like, mm -hmm. even if it's happening in the scene, it's supposed to be like, like a traumatic, like horrifying scene. There's a little bit of you that's like, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad I'm watching. Like, this is fun. I enjoy this. And it's it's kind of just our like primal 
nature and it also because we know that it's not real ultimately it's just kind of fun to watch people have that much fun with effects on camera um and and that's that's lost when you are in these big studios that have deadlines and you can't do 40 takes of ripping somebody's eye out with a fireplace poker because they need to get these shots done So we want to, we need to come back to Sean Bean um, because his whole thing. We're, so we're so the last half of this podcast, we're just going to do a character breakdown. But I do yeah. want to build on this for a minute, which is the use, the conscious use of in-camera effects was very satisfying to me. The conscious use of, of practical effects, I often think that the best is a mix of having a really good practical and then just elevating that practical with a little bit of CGI, mm-hmm. right? Like if you can, if you can get both, those are often the best for like that extra. But there are a couple of scenes, there's some melting of wax figures where he, he's using more of like David Lynch and he's using kind of this like yeah. the thematic visuals, right? To, to remind you of what this film is about. It's about the erasure of identity, the erasure of self through these others, right? Her inability to, 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 to trace who she is and thus the inability of Colin to figure out who he is, right? As you see him unravel, this kind of unraveling, the melting, the kind of pinnacle scene in the film is one where Colin bashes in the figurative <laughs> head now when you say bash it's more of like a tissue paper crumpling the figurative head of Vasia. so yes. spoiler alert and then where's her face so you see that as kind of the head the image throughout all of the if you see possessor you see a man wearing kind of like a woman's face and all of that is the work of dan martin the vfx artist who david or brandon Cronenberg is, is quoted saying dan's fake heads are spectacular they're really shockingly good I don't know if that fake head was spectacular like the mask was meant to be a mask right and so those visuals that that montage is really powerful but i think of those moments and that choice to do the choice to weave that that kind of plasticky film face right with the rest of the the, the effects throughout the film really paid off yeah because you're kind of you, you buy it as part of the film you're like okay he's really wearing her you know, he's just that's symbolic because he's deciding to try and take on control at that point in the film. Yeah. And and there are almost no words in that whole scene and you don't need them. You you know exactly so what beautiful. the goal of that scene is and what that and that really is kind of the turn of the movie because it, it flips it on its head. Um, the whole time we were Voss in Colin's body and now we're essentially Colin in Voss's mind in a weird mm-hmm. way. Like, and, and you need that visual to tell you what's happening because they're not going to come out and say, you know, they could have used voiceover, right? But no, yeah. it wouldn't have worked. And, yeah, and, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just getting hype. <laughs> no, and, and I, I had a note on that. It's like the, that tur- that's, that's really the, the turn into like the third act of the movie. If that was a studio moment, I absolutely think that we would have cut away to uh, like Girder. Uh, um, Jennifer Jason Lee's character having some sort of exposition to the text of like, we need to pull her out before a certain time or else there's like a yeah. risk of incomplete connection. Like there, there are so many scenes yeah. that they probably could have had explaining why certain things need to happen. It. And they yeah. instead they just had a body melting down, another body unmelting and faces getting uh, blurry and stuff. And you, you understand exactly what's happening. You don't need, you don't need technical readouts of like their levels are spiking she's only yeah. at an eight she needs to be at a 10 or whatever like I, it doesn't add like not that it wouldn't add anything but that's a different movie that's not the movie that brandon wanted to make i think it's i think that comes to the crux of why filmmakers often have so much trouble with quote 
the um you know the studio right is because the studio has to think about the common denominator and so they often feel obligated to over explain and that over explanation makes 50 percent of the viewers feel like they aren't even being trusted to understand the narrative right like this movie is trusting me to follow what's happening and to feel you know pulled in you know when i was about to watch this movie I was like, oh, I'm so hype. You did mention that there's one gore moment that's really <laughs> shocking. I'll be honest. I have no idea which one you were talking about. They were all pretty shocking. Can you give me a hint? Which uh, one was the worst for you? The one that was worse for me was when Colin attacks Parse with the the fireplace poker. And specifically the shot of him like inserting it into his mouth and just like stabbing straight down into his yep. throat. That, that okay, was that one's pretty rough. bad. Yeah. That was rough Parse, for me. by the way, Sean Bean, and you guys will be pleased to know that Sean Bean <laughs> doesn't actually die yeah. in this movie. So yes, all the gore that happens, don't worry. Yeah, he's, 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 been under, yeah, he's been under this campaign. Once he started getting typecast, like he's been killed in 23 different films and TV shows. And uh, earlier this year, he gave an interview. It was last year. He's 60 years old now. He gave an interview basically saying, hashtag don't kill me. And yes, I have turned down projects if they make me. (laughs) (laughs) To which I think he's kind of being a spoil sport, honestly. Like, lean into it, Sean Bean. Like, I like like seeing Sean Bean in a movie and being like, oh, I wonder when he's going to (laughs) die. And and ultimately, like, I would argue this is the hardest he's ever been killed in a movie. And he doesn't die. He doesn't die. And they just do it in like a casual, like, oh, he's in stable condition. Yeah. that, that that was done specifically no to satisfy Sean Bean, but oh my gosh, what a great actor! So, let's mm. start with let's go into character, shall we? Like, let's break it down. What yeah. where do you want to start? You want to um, start with Paris or let's, you want to start with Hoss? Let's start with Boss. All right, I have a lot of things to say about Boss. Okay. Um, so the the most interesting thing between watching the theatrical version and the uncut version was a, a tiny little clip that I found, um, or that that was added in. So in the attack on uh, on Parse. Uh, with the fireplace poker it, it's largely the same um it's a little bit extended but there's one specific little shot where when right before he takes uh he takes the gun and goes to shoot um his fiance colin's fiance uh voss as colin like kind of twists the p- fireplace poker out of his mouth and purposefully like pops a couple of parse's teeth out and that i i I, I I know I get why it was cut because it's just incredibly gory and and teeth stuff in general just kind of freaked me out. But that scene specifically, to me, that jumped out because it was the only time where it wasn't a pure like decision to kill. Like even it, it, regardless of the level of brutality, that seemed like it was purely to inflict pain and not to to give some sort of fatal blow. It's like, even it's in the beginning when she was as Holly and she was stabbing all those stabs, like any one of those stabs is probably fatal. And she went overboard and was sloppy with, with the number of stabs. Mm-hmm. Like she didn't torture him. It was all specifically to kill. And same with parse for the most part was, it was all, they were, they were all intended to kill, but that one little twist where it just pops out a couple teeth, like that's only to inflict pain. And I thought that was such an interesting insight into oh, Boss's don't character. You think, don't you think that's showing that Colin is infecting her? No. Right? Colin's the one who has the bad relationship with Parse. He's his, his evil father-in-law. I think that that was... I, so I read that as Voss kind of going further into her... Oh, uh, neurosis. Yeah, her, yeah her, her lack of humanity or whatever. And she was evil. just... She wasn't even seeing them as 
cold targets anymore that she just needed to kill. She was enjoying, for lack of a better word, the, the pain that she was inflicting. I, I don't yeah. think that was Colin at all. Which rises to a huge climax at the end, yeah. right? This idea of enjoyment in murder. And the, the, yeah. the thing about the gore in this film is it's not Tarantino gore. It's not studio it gore. It. It's not, I don't know if it even revels in it. I think it's shocking because it is almost cold and distant, right? Yeah. You show her reveling in it, but it, it well, is not enjoyable gore, well, right? She, like, no, the movie, does, the movie doesn't revel in the gore, I mean. And I think some of that has to do with the sound design. Like I only realized this recently, but like the reason that Tarantino gore is quote fun is because he uses like cartoon sound effects and you don't even realize it right. As the gore is happening, the the soundtrack is reminding you that it's all fun and games. This movie. uh, No, it's pretty (laughs) dark. Well, and also with Tarantino, he surrounds his gore with cool characters and quippy remarks and And comedy and everything. And in in this, like we we're meant to, not like or not relate to Voss, I think. I, I and, and that's that's one of the questions that I have for you is um on the on the character of Voss, do you think she actually loved her family? Oh my gosh. Ooh. Okay, this is rough. This is a tough one. Do I think she loved her family? I think she did love them at one point. Yes. Yeah. But I think I think I think she had loved I think she like I mean, I think what's hun- it's hard to understand is that is she, is she a psychopath or was she always? Right? Yeah, like, that's, she made that's a psychopath- the core question, I think. My, my, I think my sense of what the film was telling me was maybe it's just because I'm kind of, I'm starting to get fed up with my corporate job, right? Maybe I'm I'm putting <laughs> my own my own burdens on the script that weren't there. Is that it's the process of doing this act that has made her who she is, and that she gives up everything in her life to become the perfect shell for them, yeah. right? Like. She is surrendering, like love for whomever. Like she not only gives up her own identity, but all of her relationships for the for the for the good of the company, right? The the ultimate cult. Her ultimate relationship is with her boss. Yeah, and that's where the movie ends. Um, that's that's yeah. interesting. I I almost had the opposite take of it. I she my, always hated them, and then she thought they were a burden. A little bit, yeah. My head canon is that. It, she was either recruited by this job or she found this job and took it because she liked it and was always um, hiding that part or, or, or suppressing that that aspect of her identity. And maybe the family was just an excuse to or, or like a last like vestige of connecting herself to humanity in a way. And I think Gerda realized that and and. Unleashed her essentially by by removing that severing that last connection. But, yeah, but the oh my gosh, the twist. Well, if she if she didn't love her family, why does Colin or why does Toss or Voss as Colin go back to the house to watch them for a little while? Um, I well, I think it's, I think that is her struggle. Like, I think she is trying to trying to lie to herself. I think she doesn't necessarily want to accept what she is at that point. And that's like a last ditch effort to, to save her soul essentially. But mm. I, I saw this is, so you would say you saw this movie as her losing her, her humanity, I guess. Yeah. The very last pieces, right? Yeah. Like her family is the only thing holding her to being human, right? It's I, like the option to, to be a mom. Yeah. I would consider this, the story of us, I, I would say it's her revealing her true self rather than mm-hmm. losing it. Um, I, like, I think scary, the mask right? kind of came off. Yeah. And that's another thing that I think is so brilliant about the characterization is 
she they they could have very easily explained or justified why she's here or why she's so good at this or or what she, how she does the work that she does by saying like she was she saw somebody get murdered as a kid or she like her dad was murdered brutally or something else that like kind of turned her into like a trauma that turned her into a monster. But we don't get that for all we know. She's just a terrible person and she just likes doing this psychopathic stuff. And I love that they didn't, especially for a female character like that, that is so interesting that they didn't try to justify the, um, the awful things that she does with some nonsense backstory. Yeah, that was, I mean, that's, so like, this, first of all, this is, I always have a section, Bechdel test, pass or fail. Most of the films I've done on this show not are not Bechdel tech passes. And I made a joke. I was like, yay, feminism, women <laughs> working together to assassinate yeah. men, I, I mean, guess. that's, like, uh, that, that's, that's, like, that's, liberal, that's true. like liberal feminism, you know? Yeah, that's like, true more, feminism is women yeah, can be awful people, people too. <laughs> yeah, more, more female murderers. Like, we need equality in, like, the evil. And I don't know if yeah. that's necessarily the equality I want. What I am happy with is the equality of giving this part to such a talented actress, right? It's, like, it's yeah. It doesn't feel like it's about... The film doesn't really feel like it's about gender, even though there are some interesting scenes where, you know, for instance, Colin... Uh, has sexual intercourse with his fiance, mm -hmm. and you're wondering like okay is she, like huh like they, they don't really talk that much about it right like gender and uh, you know your identity but i think the discussion of identity is something that brandon cronenberg is really interested in he has a quote he says i was interested in making a film about how we construct and maintain our identities as people and the potential disconnects between those identities and our lives a lot of the film in its world is sort of metaphorical. It's not meant to be a speculative fiction of where we're going. It's set in an alternate past. The world is designed as a discussion for these themes, right? Like the world is built up around this idea of identity. Um, so you think that this film is about her finding her identity, right? I, I think, yeah, I think it was about her finding her true self and the, the, not the realization, but the acceptance that what her true self is, is someone who's totally... Uh, void of any humanity and disassociated from humanity. All right, let's let's talk about Colin. Yeah. What is his character about for you? Co Colin's an interesting one because we don't really know much about him. We exactly. we get yeah. before we really see or hear him, we get about a 30 second conversation in the in the hall or in the apartment. We don't even really hear what he's talking about. And then the only other understanding we have, we have of him is in the context of somebody took over my mind. I want to figure out what's going on. Um, but the really the the only things we learn about him are through through Voss's possession of him. So he he is married to the daughter of the or engaged to the daughter of yeah. this uh, Google esque data mining company, and he works uh, in what is referred to as the mine, and uh, apparently just has like no real uh issues with it he's just he's happy to just sit at this virtual reality desk and um and just look at look through people's webcams and just collect data on them um so I, yeah I, which I is which kind of yeah i think he's the same i think he's very similar to Voss in that way i think he it's it's the same job in a in a weird way um, I found his job really interesting because that was hard for me to see as 2008. But, you know, I have a I have an Oculus now. I'm very into VR. I'm, I, I love that his VR job is that thing that we're all scared of, right? We all have friends who cover up their webcam camera when it's yeah. not in use. Well, this is exactly what your biggest fear is, is that people watch you through your webcams and he's literally taking inventory of what people's blinds are while 
they're doing all sorts of things in their different bedrooms, right? He has to like say to the camera, Venetian blinds, white, brown curtains. But so right? that's, that's an interesting point though, because I, I was trying to think when he was doing that job is, I don't know what's scarier to me, the, the idea that somebody could be watching me through my webcam or in invading my privacy like that, or that they could be doing it specifically so they could sell me things. Well, so so it's not scary because we already know, like I have a Google Home Mini in my room. Yeah. And I know for a fact that it's listening right now for keywords. Like it's storing it's just, the word, it's storing everything I say and it's storing up what I say multiple times so it can better target ads to me. Like yeah. I, we all, like the weirdest thing is that our generation and Gen Z <laughs> tacitly acknowledge and accept that. <laughs> yeah it's just the normalization of this yeah this just like colin surveillance he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't hate his job he just does it right yep and nobody really it. only one person really in the movie comments on it and mm -hmm. if anything the the other person that comments on it is parse in his um in his speech at the beginning of the party he he toasts to boredom because they're mm -hmm. basically that company is so good at doing what they're doing that it's just a normal boring part of everyday life and he wants something even more like exciting and sinister to put out in the world. Like who knows what, like they could probably be Facebook is what he's going to invent. <laughs> yeah. He's got something new. So that was an interesting thing is, you know, we only, we only interact with Sean Bean, who is one of the targets, right? The, the evil CEO, uh, which is ironic, right? Like, cause it's a corporate subterfuge. Is he, he's not that much more evil than anyone else in the movie, but they, they characterize him mostly by his daughter saying how evil and how mean he is, but you don't really get any of that except for him being kind of gruff. Like I never, yeah. we're just supposed to take it at his word that he's an evil person, but actually he's he, by his actions in the text, one of the least worst people, <laughs> right? Yeah. Relative, like within the, the scope of the movie, for sure. I mean, he runs this company that is obviously evil and, and like very Google monolithic, um, that kind of just normalized faceless, data-driven evil but yeah like what the his daughter says like people mentioned that he's not human it's all just toothless dinner party talk and it's it's how people think about zuckerberg and elon musk today is like they'll they'll post on twitter or facebook how evil mark zuckerberg is and then they'll continue to use facebook they're benefiting yeah. they're still at this party for, that he's throwing they're benefiting yeah. they're reaping all the riches that they he just has. Say, that's a really good point yeah it's all it's all toothless just like i love to talk about jeff bezos as soon as i order on amazon right we we have a hard time separating convenience from our morals yeah. um but, you know, Sean Bean is one of only three actors to break out of Lord of the Rings typecasting. I mean, he definitely got continued to be typecast as the knight who gets murdered. Um, <laughs> but he also has played a second typecast, which is these kind of like corporate slick men. Do you know what I mean? I've yeah. seen him in a similar role in a few things. And wasn't he also in Equilibrium? He was. Yes, yeah, he, he was. Yep. He was the. He was, he was one of the. Poet, the poet cop. Yeah. He was like the poet warrior <laughs> who uh, he reads. I think it's Keats. Um, yeah, gosh, he's got. I mean, again, so he comes comes into these films for short amount of short, very short amount of time, and is able to make an impact. What do you think it is about him that made him so good as just as Pars that nobody else could have done? I'm not sure. I mean, I I think he definitely has that kind of commanding, like weird corporate authoritative presence that exudes like a, a kind of confidence and a little bit of smarminess, but. You you know you know what he's doing is bad, but you want to follow him probably because there's a lot of money in it. Like that that's what it seemed like. Everybody who was there was there for. Like I don't think any of them particularly liked him, but I think there there was enough of that that charisma 
that just overshadowed the um and put like a kind of a, a veil over the work that he he believed in the, in that he was doing if you're just listening you're listening to they came from outer space it's a show on wirlp 97.3 fm richmond indie radio I am Cameron Kitt, and I'm speaking with Victor Caressel about the 2020 film Possessor, written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg. You heard it right, that, that very Cronenberg. All right. Interface is active and we're at full power. This might be a bit of a rough jump. Just do it. As you wish. So Victor, I mean, is 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 Voss your favorite character? Um, the first time I watched it, I I thought Voss was the most interesting one. But the the second time, I connected more and I focused more on what uh, Gerder was doing. Mm-hmm. Jason, I was gonna Jason. say like she's but, she's got the slow burn. Yeah. Besides being reveal. besides being just like a brilliant actress. Uh, yeah. Just the the way that they portray her is this weird mix of like motherly and manipulative is just so so great and so did you say you'd seen existence mm-hmm. yeah um, so Love that movie. so for the uh listeners that have not seen it existence is a 99 um cronenberg movie it came out right around the matrix and uh, and a couple other movies where yeah. like nested realities are are kind of the the hot topic at that time and oh. um and jennifer jason lee in that movie plays a a game designer called allegra and uh, she it designs this new, I, I wouldn't even call it virtual reality because the whole thing of existence is that it's uh, it's like biotechnology. So they are living living organism computers that you you plug into via Bioport, which is kind of like a matrix style and thing. And it's in, so in hard, everything's like fleshy. Yeah, I love the fleshy gun. Oh, yeah, like the there's like a bone gun that shoots teeth. It's it's wild. I, oh, I just watched it like for the first time this weekend. Perfect. And it's got sexy baby Jude Law. So if that's not enough for you, go watch it. <laughs> yeah. Ian Holm, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, well, Willem Dafoe in that movie. It's wild. Mm-hmm. But my my headcanon after watching Existence was like, this is kind of like a spiritual, like, it. I wonder if Allegra in that movie grew up to help develop this tech and work at this company. It's like the same kind of character to me, is that yes. she just this doesn't really... Oh my gosh, no. I would love that, that that like she's burnt out yeah. and she's just like tired. She says she's tired and that you know, she kind of looks yeah, you're right, motherly and manipulative. She has a line where she says to Voss, like, you know, I was kind of hoping you'd be my replacement. And Voss is like, Oh, I'd be so honored. Yeah. Right. And it's like my replacement for the murder machine. <laughs> like, <laughs> you'd be so honored. Like yeah. what um so yeah, what what about Gerder did you find more interesting on the second watch? I, I was just focusing on just the little the little characterizations that Jennifer Jason Lee did to make her seem more human like the the scene in the beginning where she's doing the post uh, mission um, kind of calibration it, that also is very reminiscent of um, Blade Runner 2049 for me the cells interlinked speech that um, the Ryan Gosling's character has to do after, every day to like calibrate him and make sure that he is in line I guess mm-hmm. um, it felt very similar to that but the there's a little part where after the report's done, she just takes out a little like jar of cream and just kind of rubs her hands. And just like, oh, it's such yeah. just a nice little like human moment that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think about to do. And it, that, that seems like it's absolutely something that Jennifer Jason Lee just brought to set one day. It was like, what if she just like has a bunch of creams that she just rubs on her hands? Like it's just such a nice little thing that she does. And then she takes 
boss's hand and kind of rubs it a little bit. And just, it's such a nice little motherly gesture that you can tell is driven exclusively just to, to retain her loyalty and to, to kind of ingratiate her into staying on and, and continuing this mission. Because ultimately, Girder is a character who exists solely to carry out the, the corporate mission statement and to, and to complete her, her like quotas. Um, and yeah, spoiler alert, the company wins, yeah, you know, the company people, always wins. People are less power or less important and less powerful. So did you have anything similar happen with your screenplay? Cause you know, you're dealing with, you said a five hander, which is probably not easy. I'm also dealing with writing a character with writing a screenplay with four main characters. Right. And figuring out mm-hmm. how do I balance all of these, all women as well through their arcs and, and, you know, figuring out who you fall in love with and wondering yourself who secretly is the real main character, you know, yeah. you have a character who was like really your main character, but it changed as you wrote the story. Um, not really. No. I mean, I, the core idea was always going to be five characters. Um, I had briefly toyed with the idea of con- consolidating them all into one, but I just felt what I wanted to talk about wouldn't be served properly by, putting it all in one person. I think you needed five different elements of this idea in order to properly um, talk about it. But then that, that there is that issue of how do you write five full characters and have them all have equal time and proper beginning, middle ends, dr- motivations, uh, drives, and like interacting scenes. So when I was writing it, I would have little... Um, I never, I, I don't do like physical outlines. Like I don't like, I don't use um, note cards or sticky cards that I have on a big board or anything. It's all uh, in the software that I, I write, if anything, or just on like a Word doc where I'll write out the Bible and everything. But I did focus on having equal time for scenes between, I, I wanted a lot of scenes between two characters specifically. So um, I would have so the, the three or the five char- main Female characters in the movie are um, Mary, uh, Weaver, Adrian, um, Heather, and Jamie. And I wrote out for I, once. I wrote a, a base outline of the movie. I looked through each scene and said, "Okay, this is a Jamie and Heather scene, and it lasts about two and a half minutes." Um, it's been a really long time since we talked to Weaver, and she hasn't had a scene with Mary in a little while. So I'm gonna try to find a way to to add this. Or to like, I, I'm going to put this scene later because there's, there, yeah, there's too much ahead of time with that. And this actually, now that it's here, it kind of makes more sense to to drive this storyline or because of this character's previous scene. So it, it was kind of a, a balancing act to, to figure out who should be in what scene talking to this character. And, and there was a little bit of switching out, um, switching in and out characters. And then on, on top of that, the, the sixth character, Miss Wyndham plays this, kind of therapist benefactor um mentor to to all to all the five girls and they all they share they all share this kind of common trauma and and she we hint at Ms. Wyndham having a trauma of that in her past but she is a little reticent to talk about it even with these these women and that's that was another element of the movie I wanted to talk about was how there is kind of also a disconnect between generations it, it's hard to talk to people even of that age um about their issues so she she's gone through 50 plus years of her life and she still can't really talk about it um but she's trying to the the her goal is to allow these 
women to talk about it, even if she can't really. Um, but yeah, the, so it, it is definitely a balancing act to get all those characters equal time and make it feel like you as an audience member don't know who the main character is because in this kind of movie there are spoiler alert characters that die in it and i didn't want anybody to know going in oh this character is gonna die because it's it's kind of using it's kind of using the language of horror movies and using it to a point where you understand what's going on because they all have their five backstories and you kind of if you've seen enough horror movies you know like oh I know what happened to this person. I know what they're going through because I've seen these movies before. But then I also wanted to flip that and say, oh, well, does that mean that they're going to die in this one because of all this stuff that I know from horror movies? And then it, it doesn't happen that way. So like, I, I, I kind of wanted to have my cake and eat it too, where I, I, give, I present these the language to you and then I say, well, actually, it's not going to work that way. You subvert. Yeah. So, so speaking of of you know subverting expectations, right? Um, what would you, with only a few minutes left here, for mm-hmm. us to wrap up with the final discussion around this wonderful film, Possessor, which I highly recommend finding wherever you want to stream it. Um, what is something that we can take away, especially as indie filmmakers, from this movie? Um, I think the biggest thing, and the the thing that drew it drew me to it the most, was having a sense of the world that you are placing this movie in um, it should be bigger than what's on the page and, and what mm-hmm. is ultimately on the screen. I, I, yeah. I don't think you need to have every answer um, and you don't, you absolutely don't need to answer everything within the movie, but I think you have to have a, a really good idea of where certain characters came from and the location that you're setting this in and why they're doing, why they might act a certain way that's surprising or how certain technology works behind the scenes, even if you never show it on on the page. Like the the thing that I always find um, like details that I when I watch behind the scenes and commentaries and stuff in movies and TV shows, I love the details that are either on screen for two seconds or not shown at all that the filmmaker talks about as being like a really cool thing that they did. Like in um in uh, the TV show Battlestar Galactica, all of this the paper in that show has the edges cut off the corner so it's all like weird octagonal paper and the the showrunner said we did that because we wanted it to feel like a big budget thing and we wanted to show that we weren't cutting any corners (laughs) and so they cut all the corners off the paper and it's like you never see it but it's just the the detail and the the thought that's put into details like that and like there are characters in like um i think like lord of the rings and stuff like they had all all of their clothes were not period, but were authentic to the the place that they were coming from, including mm-hmm. underwear and undershirts and stuff that you would never see. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see that on, on the movie, but from a, a filmmaker perspective, like, you know, it's there and you know that that's what it would be in the world. So you want to have an answer for it and you want to have a justification for doing that kind of stuff. Even if you're going to cut that scene out of the movie, or even if it's not going to be directly addressed. Um, yeah. I, I feel like that, if it's not there, it's so apparent because everything just feels superficial and it's made just to tell this one specific story. And uh, even though Brendan Cronenberg kind of said that, he's like, I literally invented this universe. There were a couple of things, yeah. To say that. But it's, it, it's, I see, I think what you're trying to say is a layered world creates a depth of of perception in the universe that you see in the film, right? It yeah, creates absolutely. depth in the film that you can sense 
And I think that that really comes through in this and that there's so much depth that isn't being said, like the weird projections that Gerder uses, right? The, the projection screen in yeah. her office, like the little bits of technology motions and, and just discussions and turns of phrase that feel completely real to that world. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. And on that, like, yeah, Brandon, Brandon Cronenberg said that he didn't necessarily know how everything worked and and that might be true. It might be in his head he had some idea, but he didn't want to talk about it or he didn't really have a, a full enough definition of it. Um, but I, I think the ultimately your goal with a movie like this is you you want people to want to see more of it without needing to see more. Like, yeah. like Alien is a great example where like there's so much so many questions that you have after watching Alien, like where did the space jockey come from? How long have these aliens been here? You don't actually need it to understand the story. It's just something that drives you to like, I want to watch that again and just kind of think about it. And that was something that frustrated me when I was watching other, or listening to other podcasts of this was interviews was people kept saying like, what would you ever do like a TV follow-up or a sequel? Or like, no, that is not what this story, like we don't need to know anymore about it. I want exactly what this was. And I want to watch it over and over again and just notice new things and think about it because it it lives in your imagination. It's like what David Lynch says about, mysteries like the second you answer a question the it becomes nothing it's it's not interesting anymore we hope that you want to hear more of this podcast but we aren't going to do another one on possessor how about that (laughs) (laughs) i think we've i think we've spoken enough about possessor that you intrigue yeah and we hope that you we've intrigued you enough to go find out more about they came from outer space follow us on instagram and like us and follow us on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. I just want to say, Victor, thank you so much for your insight and for sharing this movie with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You're tuned in to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Virtual Radio.